Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Please take out your Bibles and turn with me to uh, Romans chapter 1. We're going to be reading verses 21 through 25. Let us come before the Lord and pray for the reading and the preaching of His Word. Father, we are here indeed to worship You. You are the central point of our gathering here. For all that we gain from it, from the the warmth of fellowship, from the uplifting of our spirits and song, from the, the hope that your message gives us, all of those things, Lord, are incidental to our true purpose to be here. Our true purpose is to worship you, which is what we were created for, which is what we were redeemed for. And I pray, Lord God, as we worship you, Lord, that you would be magnified and lifted up that our worship, Lord, would be pleasing to you, that you would be glorified in all of our lives through our time together today and beyond. And I pray, Lord God, that your word would be, would be represented truly, that it would come out of my mouth the way that you would have it come out of my mouth, Lord, and that the things that I would say would be of your spirit and not my own. And I pray, Lord God, that you would use your word to continue to change us and shape us more and more into the image of our glorious Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's in His name we pray. Amen. Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 21. And the word of the Sovereign Lord reads, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies amongst themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. John Piper, the pastor and author, once wrote, Nothing makes God more supreme and more central in worship than when a people are utterly persuaded that nothing, not money or prestige or leisure or family or job or health or sports or toys or friends, nothing is going to bring satisfaction to their sinful, guilty, aching hearts besides God. Now, while you guys have your Bibles out, if you wouldn't mind, please turn with me to the very beginning of the Bible, to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, and we're going to look at verses 26 and 27. It is related, by the way. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. And it reads, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the the birds of heaven, and over the livestock, and over the earth, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. from the very beginning of the Bible to the very end, the truth about mankind is, is evident and clear. All of mankind was created in the image of God. This is a truth that we take for granted, I think, but it's a truth that oftentimes we don't focus on enough. 
It's a truth that the world will deny. Every human being alive today, every person who has ever lived in history, and every person who will live until Christ returns, was created in the image of God. Every person that you have ever met in your life, every person you have ever heard about, every person you will ever meet and come to know has been created in the image of God. Now, this doesn't mean that God has hands and physical feet and physical eyeballs and physical hair like we do. It means that we were patterned after His nature and His character. And we were created in such a way that we were to reflect that to the world. We don't reflect what God looks like. We reflect who He is in His attributes, in His nature and His character. And what that means is we... When we are loving, when we display love to other people, we reflect the character of God. That love doesn't originate with us. We are loving because God is loving. When we are gracious, when we are merciful and compassionate, and when we are just, we reveal to the world the nature of God. Those things don't come from us. They originate in Him. We reflect those things because we were created in His image. We bear in our lives the imago Dei, which is Latin for the expression, the image of God. And this truth that mankind was created to be a reflection of God is a truth that the world wants to forget. It is a truth that the world hates. It is a truth that many people want to deny. This is why so many people make a point in modern culture, to reduce humanity down to the level of animals. We've heard it all of our lives. We're just advanced animals. Many people believe that humans are not a special creation, that we're not above the animal kingdom. In fact, there are many people who even look at animals with more, as more noble and more valuable than humans. You hear it all the time. People who say, I prefer animals to people because animals are better than us. At the root of this is the fact that the world hates the truth, the truth that we bear the image of God. But this truth is the foundation, really, of everything that we know about us. It is the truth about who we are and why we were created in the first place. It's even the foundational truth of our understanding of the gospel. That all of mankind, all of mankind was created in the image of God. And by the way, this truth has several extremely important implications for us. Number one, it means that every human being is endowed with an inherent dignity. Every human being contains within themselves a certain level of dignity and worth that is part of who he or she is because they were created in God's own image. And what this means for us is that every person that you meet, every person you come in contact with, every person you talk to on the phone is an image bearer of the one true God. And because of that, they are worthy of a certain level of respect and a certain level of love. And this is true of all human beings, all of them, whether you like them or not whether you agree with them or not, whether they're nice to you or not. Every person you come in contact with was created in the image of God and bears in their life the same reflection that you have, that reflection of God's nature. Now, it may certainly be corrupted. It may be hard to see. It may be distorted, but it is still there, present in them. By the way, this is the, the root of why Jesus says what he says about loving your, excuse me, loving your enemies. Even I almost choke on that one. Right? Because even your enemies, even your worst enemies, possess in themselves the Imago Dei. Osama bin Laden bore the image of God. Whew, that's a hard one. The members of Congress that we have right now bear the image of God. So every human being, every human being has 
inherent dignity. That's, that's number one. That's the first implication. The second one is every human being has an innate sense of who God is. Right? And one of the reasons for that is because, as we see in Romans chapter 1, is the truth is patterned, is that we are patterned after God himself. Nature reveals who God is, but the fact is that we are patterned after God himself. We are patterned after his nature. We are made, we were created, we were fashioned in his likeness. You see, we're not the model. God is the model. God is the pattern. We are the facsimile. We are the replica. And the way that we're created bears witness to the reality of his existence. As copies bear witness to the existence of an original, our lives bear witness to the existence of God. It's inescapable. Who we are testifies to who God is. Mankind is creative and capable of wisdom and loving and generous because that's who God is. And all of these attributes, none of them originate with us. They are ingrained in us. They are impressed into us. Like a pattern is impressed into clay. He is the potter. We are but the vessel. And so we are created in the image of God. And we all possess an innate sense of who God is. And this is besides of what the rest of creation reveals. But number three, every human being was created to be connected to God. Mankind is the crowning achievement of God's created order for a reason. Mankind was created special and unique for a reason. Mankind was created in the image of God, and because of that, he was created and built, he has a built-in need to be connected to him. Because it is God not the world. It is God who gives man his purpose. That's why the question that the world continually seeks to ask, and it will ask in vain and try to answer in vain, is this. What is the meaning of life? We have all heard that, all of us, multiple times in our lives. And guess what? The next generation is still wrestling with that same question. What is the meaning of life? What is the purpose of life? And the world is filled full of answers in the end that will leave people empty and wanting. It doesn't matter what they pursue, what they set in their minds to be their purpose. They will always find at the end of the day, at the end of their road, empty, emptiness and want. Because our purpose is not founded in anything in creation, but is founded in the creator himself, our relationship with God. As our catechism explains in the second question, it says, what is the, the chief end of man, right? And the answer to that question is man's chief end, man's purpose is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That is why we were created in the first place. We were created to be connected to God because our glorifying him and our enjoying him is our purpose. Until we fill that purpose, we will always find emptiness and vanity. Which leads then to the fourth implication, that is every human being was created to Worship. We were created to worship God. That's the fullest expression of our purpose. And ultimately, it's the outworking of our nature. We were created to worship God himself. Well, what does that even mean? Now, a lot of people will think that think of worship in just purely religious terms. They'll think of religious activity. They'll think about singing songs. They'll think about rituals. They'll think about, you know, religious rites or even services. But really, worship is something so much more than those things. It certainly can encompass those things, but it's more than those things. In fact, let's just go to, to a secular answer. Webster defines worship as a verb, which is to honor or show reverence for a divine being or a supernatural power. It's a little more than just singing, right? Or to regard with great extravagant respect, honor, or devotion. That's worship. To regard something with great or extravagant respect, honor, or devotion. In fact, worship can even be a noun. It, it is extravagant respect or admiration or devotion to an object of esteem. That's a lot more than just meeting together on Sunday morning then. 
Worship is about honoring and reverencing something or someone. It's about valuing, even loving something or someone to an extravagant degree. Bob Coughlin of Sovereign Grace Music, by the way, he sang one of the songs that he produced. Uh, he is our God this morning. Right? He says this about worship. He says, well, it's simplistic to say that worship is love. It's a fact that what we love most, what we love most will determine what we genuinely worship. What we love most is what we will genuinely worship. Worship is about what we love. That's the heart and the root of our worship. What is it that we truly, genuinely love? John Piper adds this. He says, worship is basically adoration, and we adore only what delights us. There's no such thing as sad adoration or unhappy praise. And so worship is about what we love. It's about what we adore, what delights us. Worship is the devotion that we offer to that which moves our hearts the most. It is the reverence that we give to what is supreme value in our lives. That is what worship is. But at its core, there is still something more. Sinclair Ferguson, by the way, when you listen to to pastors, every once in a while you get to listen to one who has a wonderful, like, uh, Irish accent, Sinclair Ferguson. I mean, you just, like, you could just listen to him talk all day. You know what I mean? Talk about theological stuff that goes right over your head, but you can just listen all day, right? He says, for worship is essentially the reverse of sin. Sin began and begins with, when begins, when we succumb to the temptation, we shall be as gods. We make ourselves the center of the universe and dethrone God. By contrast, worship is giving God his true worth. It is acknowledging him to be the Lord of all things, the Lord of, our, of everything in our lives. He is indeed the most high God. This right here is what we were created for. To live in such a way as to acknowledge God to be the Lord of all things, including every part of our lives. To love Him supremely, to adore Him above all else, and to glorify Him in our actions, in our attitudes. We were created to worship. It is built into us. It's part of our very nature. And this truth, and the truth is this, since we were created to worship, since we were created to worship, If we will not worship God, we will invariably worship something else. This is an immutable truth. It's a truth that the world hates, but it's a truth that brings us right to our text. Paul has written this letter to the Romans to explain the gospel, and he says he's not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power to save And in chapter 1, he begins to explain what the gospel is, and he begins by telling the readers the bad news of the human condition, the bad news that makes the good news so necessary. And then in, in the very beginning of this, Paul helps us to see three truths about the gospel that the world finds deeply offensive. Three truths that the world hates, and number one is the wrath of God. We've been talking about that quite a bit, which is real, and it's being revealed right now on the sins of man because the world hates this truth. Number two, the truth is that everyone knows God. That's another truth that the world despises, which means there is no one who is innocent. There is no one who is an atheist. Everyone knows God. They just suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. And then third, everyone, which is what we're going to talk about today, everyone, everyone was made to worship. Everyone was made to worship, which means everyone will worship something in their life. Now understand, there are a lot of people who will say that they're not religious. They will insist, I do not believe in God, and they will insist that they're reasonable and rational people, and they would never do anything as superstitious as worshiping anything. They would insist that they would never worship anything, and they would never exhibit this kind of extravagant respect, honor, or devotion for anything. But let's remember... The heart of worship is love. And it's a fact that we, what we love most, will determine where our affections will lie. 
And that will point us to the genuine place where we worship. We all worship something. And Paul in this text makes that absolutely clear. Now, as we look at our text, let's back up just a bit. Because I'm going to put this in the right context. And we'll start reading in, in verse 16 to kind of keep this all in the right frame of reference. Paul writes, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, but also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed against from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For because what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For because his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things have been made. So they are without excuse for because although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Paul says, the wrath of God is revealed against the sins of men who suppress the truth and hold down the truth in their sin. They know the truth about God. They know the truth about sin and its consequences, but they actively suppress and hide the truth because they know it. They just deny it. Because God has shown them the truth. The nature of God is revealed in creation and His requirements are written on their hearts. They know the truth. But then Paul says, For because although they knew God, although they knew the truth, although they knew Him, they did not honor Him or give thanks to Him. Now what, what is, what's Paul saying here? Because this is not a, just a little statement that he, and then moves on. This is, this is profound. Although, what he's saying is, although they know God exists, they know it, it's in them. Although they, 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 his character of who he is is plain to them in creation, although they knew what God required, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Now, why is that important to us? Well, it's important to us because this right here, brothers and sisters, is the very heart of what worship is. The heart of worship is honoring God as God. <laughs> now, I know that seems obvious, but this is something that a lot of people really miss. Worship is not about how you feel when you, when you hear your favorite song being sung. Right? Worship is not about, you know, brownie points that you get in heaven when you come to church, right? Worship is about honoring God as God and then giving thanks to God. That is the heart of worship. Honoring God, esteeming God, respecting God, loving God, cherishing God, honoring God as God, as the creator of all things, the sovereign of the universe. That is worship. The heart of worship is a willingness to turn towards God and acknowledge Him. to acknowledge Him as who He is, God, and to give Him the due honor to Him. The late Jerry Bridges puts it this way, Worship is the specific act of ascribing to God the glory, majesty, honor, and worthiness that are His. Worshiping God is just giving credit to God that is already due Him. It's already due Him. It already belongs to Him. That's what worship is, is us then just giving Him what belongs to Him. John MacArthur once wrote, Worship is our inmost being responding with praise for all that God is through, his, through, through our attitudes, actions, thoughts, and words based on the truth of God as He has revealed Himself. Honoring God, is for, for be, honoring God for being God is the heart of worship. And by the way, it's what we were created for. As his image bears, we were created to, to do just that. It's not even any more complicated than that. It is honoring him as the Lord. We were created for that, and we were created to give him thanks. This coming week, we are celebrating a national holiday. 
a holiday that just about everybody in our country is going to observe. Schools are closed. The government is closed. The only people who aren't are those people that are out of their minds trying to make an extra buck on Black Friday. Right? Now, for most people, this day is about getting together with family. Right? It's, it's, it's about traditions. It's about watching a football game. But this holiday was created. This holiday was developed. This holiday was put on the calendar and, and signed into law because of our need and our obligation to give thanks to God. The early Christians who came to our country, despite the hardship that they faced, despite all of the challenges that they endured, despite even the pain and death that was all around them, they saw a need to celebrate and thanks to God, to give thanksgiving to the Lord. Why? Because it's an act of worship. It's ingrained in who we are. Thanksgiving is an act of worship. In fact, let's look back to our call to worship this morning. Psalm 100. Listen to, listen to these words. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into His presence with singing. This is worship. But listen, know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us. We are His. We are His people, the sheep of His pasture. Enter His gates with what? Thanksgiving. Enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him. Bless His name, for He is the Lord. For the, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And His faithfulness to all generations. Thanksgiving is an act of worship because God is God. He's the creator and the sustainer of all things. He is the giver of life. He is the giver of love. He is the giver of grace and mercy. He's the giver of every possible good gift, as James tells us. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. The truth is, all that you have, all that you have that is good is from the hand of God. Your life was given by Him. Your job, yes, you have skills and you had to go to an interview, but by the way, that job still is yours because of what God has done for you. Your family, your children, your grandchildren, your friends, your health, all that you have materially are all gifts from the sovereign hand of a gracious King. In fact, the very next breath you take is a gracious gift from God. That itself is enough to, give, to make you fall on your knees in deep gratitude towards Him. Because without Him, you wouldn't even have that. Thanksgiving is the natural act of worship, and it is the will of God for your life, by the way. It is God's will that you live in thanksgiving towards Him. Paul says this in his first letter to the Thessalonians. Give thanks in all circumstances, not just in the good ones, not just when things go your way, not just when you're winning, not when, just when the sun is shining, but in all circumstances. For if this is the will of God in Christ for you. It is God's will for your life to worship Him through thanksgiving. And so honoring God as God and giving thanks to Him are acts of worship, which is exactly how we were made. It's what we were created for. But Paul says, right, for although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. They didn't worship Him as God, and as a consequence, they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. You need to really pay attention here, because this really explains a whole lot. You want to know what's wrong with the world? This is going to give you an insight into what's happening in the world around you. Everyone knows that God exists. Everyone knows what God requires. Everyone knows that God is due honor and thanksgiving. But those who deny Him and refuse to worship Him, their dark hearts, as a result, will grow even darker. And their thinking becomes futile. 
Right? Now, the word that Paul uses here for futile, by the way, our English word, English doesn't ever seem to be quite as expressive as the Greek. But the English word that he uses here for futile means aimless. It means pointless. Their thinking really doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't accomplish anything. It's pointless. It's aimless. It's all over the place. And as a result, he says, claiming to be wise, they became fools. Although these people fancy themselves to be sophisticated, though they will fancy themselves to be enlightened, and we see it all the time, right? Though they fancy themselves as the intellectuals of our society, despite their posturing, they become fools. And the Greek word that Paul uses here for fool simply means to be without an edge, which really is a reference to something like a knife. How useless is a dull knife? And that's his point. It isn't sharp anymore. It becomes dull. And I think this is an apt metaphor. I think it is. What, God, what Paul is saying here is because those who know God refuse to worship Him, though they think that they're sharp, their denial of God makes them even more dull. Though they think that they're wise, they actually are becoming more foolish in the process. Please don't miss this truth. Paul is saying that everyone knows that God exists and everyone knows what God expects, but they, but those who deny Him, those who refuse to worship Him, their hearts don't become more enlightened. They become darker. Their minds and their thinking and reasoning abilities, though they claim to be wise and free thinkers, their thinking and abilities become pointless in vain as their minds grow dull with the influence of the world. And the result is that, and the result of that, the result of them thinking that they have re, they've rejected God and religion, what they've simply done is they've just embraced a different religion, a false religion, and they will end up worshiping a false god. Paul says, and they, in verse 23, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. They didn't, you see, they didn't give up faith and worship as many people claim that they do. They just simply made an exchange. They traded. They exchanged who they have faith in. They exchanged who it is that they will worship. You see, mankind's nature in his denial of God has not changed. Simply denying the truth doesn't change who we are and who we were created to be. Man's nature remains the same. He is still created in the image of God that hasn't changed. He is still has an innate sense of who God is. That has not changed. He is still made to be connected to God. Again, that has not changed either. He is still created to worship God. Denying the truth and unrighteousness doesn't change a person's nature. And so those who reject God don't go from being religious to irreligious. They don't go from having faith to not having faith. They just simply trade what they're religious about. They just simply trade what it is that they trust. They just simply trade what it is that they will worship. And, and notice it says that they exchange the glory of the immortal God for images or replicas resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Notice that it says that they worship the image or the replica of something. They will not worship the original. They worship a copy, a bad copy. As image bearers themselves, rather than worshiping the original, rather than worshiping the glorious master himself, they settle for his handiwork, right? But not even just for their handiwork, but for their own handiwork. They end up worshiping things that they themselves make. They give up worshiping the living God for lifeless, created, powerless, feeble things. You talk about futility. You talk about something that's pointless. And also notice there's a descending scale here. You move from God to mankind to animals. That is the insidious slide of idolatry. It moves from the greatest possible value to the least value. 
It moves from the light further into the dark. It moves from glory to vanity. Now, today, most people would, who reject God, they don't fall prey to physical idol worship. I mean, the truth is, we're not going to find a bunch of people. I mean, there might be some, but we're not going to find a bunch of people in California who are you know, gathering together to bow down to a golden calf, right? There's not a lot of people who like will find the statue of Artemis and like pour their hearts out to her. But believe me, they still worship idols that are still made in the image of man. These idols might not be tangible to us, but they are still very real. You see, a lot of people who reject God will fall into some form of humanism, which is, by the way, some form of idolatry. Right? And we see this all around us. It's the idea, the philosophy that mankind is autonomous in the measure of all things. Right? And that mankind is the author of his own destiny. And that mankind has the power to solve all of his own problems. And that mankind is basically good. He just needs a little help to become great. That's those people who think that you can educate man into goodness. That you can legislate man into goodness. Right? And so mankind really... Mankind working together is the hope of the world. That's humanism. This philosophy has led to ideas like modernism that taught that science and reason would elevate mankind to a utopian society. This was very popular in the 19th centuries and the early part of the 20th centuries, and it was in this climate that the philosopher Nietzsche declared authoritatively that God is dead because mankind in his enlightenment had killed him. Very smug thing to say, but this kind of thinking, right, that they had given up worshiping God simply just became a, a false worship of humanism. And what was the result of that? The direct result of this ideology, the direct result of that false religion, the direct result of that false devotion were the horrors of World War I and World War II. Not to mention the concepts of things like eugenics, or the advent of Planned Parenthood that, have, that has murdered millions of children? Or how about the Communist Revolution that killed millions more? Mankind's rebellion against God has led him to embrace the evils of the false god of modernism. Now, which itself, people became disillusioned with modernism, and that led to a new type of thinking which is called what? Postmodernism. Which is still the idea that mankind is the measure of all things, but now he's the measure of all things, including the truth itself. You've heard it, right? We've heard it all of our lives. The truth is what? Relative. Relative. We've heard that in school. We hear that all the time around us in the media. Your truth is not my truth, and my truth is not your truth. The truth is not even objective anymore. The truth is shaped by our own perspective. That's why there's so much in the way of identity politics, by the way. It's all about my perspective. In fact, it's from this poison well we get things like cultural Marxism. It's from there we get things like critical race theory, critical gender theory, critical queer theory, and the social justice movement. You see, mankind is still being told that all of reality can still be measured in human terms. The truth about reality is not objective. But rather, now the measurement is human experience. The measure of reality is human suffering. It is measured between oppressor and oppressed classes. And now those who, who actually hold on to things like objective facts and truth those people are called what now? Racist, sexist, homophobic, xenophobic, and hateful. Those who say, well, wait a minute, the facts say this. And see, feelings today are not objective truths are the new reality. And this philosophy continues to become the default thinking of our nation. You don't believe me? Look at what they're teaching your kids in school. Who is the one that people look to now? for solutions to problems and guidance anymore. Is it to the church? Is it to God? No. This philosophy doesn't lead to God. This philosophy 
lead somewhere else. Even for people who call themselves Christians, who embrace this philosophy, it leads to something else. Where do people turn for the answers now? Where do people turn to solutions to their problems now? It is to the human institution of the government. I mean, I'm going to tell you right now, when you grew up, there was no such idea as turning to the government for everything, but now that's the default. Many people today, right? Many people today are giving up more and more control of their lives in the name of what? Health and safety. People right now are looking to the government to be what? Their provider. Why do you think they keep sending checks out to everyone? The Lord's our provider, not the government, but the people are seeing the government as their provider because the government has this endless ability to print money. And people will keep spending it because they keep sending it. We're asking the government to tell us what is right and wrong. We are. On issues like abortion and same-sex marriage and divorce and a whole host of other ones, right? The rationale now is what? It must be okay. Why? Because it's legal. It's legal, so it's okay. Even more than that, we're asking our government to shield us from unwanted ideas and criticism. We're asking the government to intervene when people say things that we don't like. That's why you hear things about hate speech legislation. By the way, if you support hate speech legislation, just, just wait your turn. At some point, what you say is going to be considered hate speech. More and more people are getting canceled and even fired for saying things that are true, like men are men and women are women. In fact, in Canada, you can go to jail for saying things like that. And we have been calling, right, and we have been we have people calling for that even in our country right now. People are openly, young people are calling for the abolition of the First Amendment in our country. It's just the weirdest thing to me. Right? I've even hear, I mean, hear grown adults saying the First Amendment, free speech is just overrated. What? We're asking the government to be the catalyst of all change. And more and more people are bowing the knee to Almighty Caesar. And understand, it's not just out there in the world. It's, it's here too. There are people who don't go to church anymore right now. There are people who are not in church and don't worship because the, the government told them not to. That's just the facts. And that's not just here. It is all across our country. The government said, you know, we know what's best for you. It's too dangerous for you. So you can go to a crowded Walmart and you can certainly go to work and you can go to a marijuana dispensary, but you cannot gather together in worship and fellowship. And many people were like, okay, you're the almighty state. You know what's best for me. I mean, you would never hurt me, would you? And then when the church says, wait a minute, no. We must obey God and not men. We will worship God. What did the government do? It threatened and it pushed back. But what was worse, what was even the worst part, was many people even called themselves Christians just left the church because of that. Many people who called themselves Christians began to slander their brothers and sisters in Christ and say horrible things about them. They began to say things like, you are so unloving. You are so selfish. You are so hateful. These are, these are words that, that Christians were saying about other Christians. Saying you're not, some even were even saying, you're not even a real Christian if you don't do what the government tells you to do. This is, this is what we've seen in our own country. And understand, that's not just an external problem out there in other churches. This, this happened in our own church, by the way. Rather than simply just disagreeing, rather than simply just saying, you know what, I love you, but I don't, I don't agree with you on this point here. They came against their own brethren. People at one time would stand and look me in the eye and say, I love you and I care about you and I'm here for you. Wouldn't come talk to me personally and privately, but then publicly would then would declare how horrified they are about us trying to honor God to the best of our abilities. All this because the almighty, all-knowing government said to do so. 
And now, as the government is pushing to have everyone take the jab, there are Christians who are saying, you're not a Christian if you don't do that. Again, it blows my mind, but this is where we are. And even now, we have their their churches in our own country and ministers who have joined the bandwagon and said, you cannot even come into the building. You cannot come to worship. You cannot fellowship with your church family unless you are willing to show proof that you have complied with Caesar's wishes. That That just scares me to death. The thing is, it's all connected. What we read in Romans chapter 1, what we're witnessing in our lifetime is that people have misplaced their trust. Today, people trust the state more than they trust God and His Word. Mankind has exchanged the glory of God for vain promises of a false God. It's something that we should call our country to repent of, by the way. By the way, worshiping a false god, exchanging the glory of God for a false god itself has even more consequences. Paul even goes even further. He says, therefore, which is the summary conjunction, therefore in light of the fact that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against the sins of men, and given that mankind suppresses the truth and unrighteousness and refuses to honor God, in light of all of that, God has given them up to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies amongst themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. You see, Paul summarizes this section and tells us how God's wrath is being revealed from heaven. It is revealed through God giving his people up and giving them further up into their their sin. And notice, he says, they exchanged, they traded the truth about God for a lie. This right here is what mankind does. No one is innocent. No one is an atheist. They know that God is real. They know what He's like. They know the truth about sin and God's justice against sin. But they willingly exchange this truth about God for a lie. And they exchanged, they traded God's glory for a lifeless idol. And what that means is God's wrath. God's wrath rightly abides on them. The wrath of God rightly abides on them because they willfully, hatefully refuse the truth about God. They exchanged God's truth willingly for a lie. And because of that, then they are justly condemned. This right here, when you look at Romans chapter 1, destroys the false arguments that so many people have today. Those who would say, well, a loving God would never send anyone to hell. People who would say that God's wrath is, it just doesn't fit with the punishment of someone's personal mistakes, as if that's all we're talking about is somebody just bumping their head or something. Or how about this? The church invented the wrath of God to make people behave. Hearing more and more of that. The argument that Paul has been making from verse 18 that mankind isn't some innocent little creature who occasionally makes mistakes. He is saying mankind fully knows the truth. Mankind knows what he's doing. He knows that he's in rebellion to God And he suppresses this truth, and more than that, mankind willingly has exchanged and traded that truth for a lie and exchanged the glory of God for something artificial, something that doesn't really require much out of him. And even worse, mankind knowingly refuses to give God what he is due, honor and thanksgiving. Mankind's love of self and sin and his hatred for God is clear, and it's because of that God's wrath is rightly revealed from heaven. Now again, notice... Again, how it's revealed. He gave them up to the lust of their, of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies amongst themselves. One of the visible manifestations of God's wrath on a person, on a community, and even on a nation is mankind's embrace of depravity and sexual sin. This is what Paul was talking about here. Roman culture was in deep rebellion to God and was given over to horrific sexual sin, which looks eerily similar to where we are today. And what we need to understand is Rome didn't survive long after its nation fell into depravity. And brothers and sisters, neither will we. God will not long endure the sins of our nations. The revelation of God's wrath is Him giving people over to their sexual sin, which leads further to further depravity, as we're going to see in the next section, which, by the way, we're going to cover next week. 
But I want you to look again at what he says here. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and as a result, they worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. You see, Paul doesn't just leave it at they didn't honor God or give thanks to Him. He didn't just stop there. He didn't just say that they just stopped worshiping God. He says they not only stopped worshiping God, but they began to worship something else in its place. They began to worship the creature rather than creator. You see, what, what this drives home is the truth that mankind was indeed created to worship, which means mankind will worship something. If we don't worship God, we will worship something else. It's immutable. I don't care what people tell you, everybody worships something. Now, people will deny that all the way up like they're denying God, and they, but the truth is they cannot escape it. It's their very nature to give adoration and love and reverence to something. If it's not God, it will be something else. Now, religious folks have all kinds of gods to worship, right? The LDS church worships a God that was created, a God that was born in history, a God that grew up and became a man and then grew up to become God like all the billions of gods before him. Unitarians worship a false God in the sense that they worship a God that is one person not Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Universalists worship a God that says that everyone's going to get saved despite what the gospel says and the overwhelming testimony of the scriptures. There are lots of false gods for the religious world. Allah, Odin, Brahma. There are many, many names. But what about those who say that they're not religious? What about those who claim to be enlightened? What do they worship? Well, many will worship technology. Others worship the God of philosophy. Others worship the God of science. Many more will worship the God of culture. Now, even less than that, or even less noble than that, people who worship the God of leisure. It's all about having fun. Or the God of entertainment, or the God of sports. We know a few of those in our community. Or the, the God of personal experience. Or how about this? Many people will worship this one God, the God of money. Right? There are all manner of false gods because, because mankind will find something, anything, to worship. In fact, John Calvin noted that mankind's heart is an idol factory. And so the question right, isn't, will we worship? It is ultimately, what will we worship? Because we will find something to worship. And people typically worship what they love the most, as Bob Coughlin says. Well, it's simplistic to say that worship is love. It's a fact that what we love the most will determine what we genuinely worship. What we love most, what we cherish the most, what we adore the most is what we will worship because we were made, created to worship. And if you won't worship God, you will worship something. But the overarching truth behind all of this is the fact that we can worship with the deepest of sincerity and the fullest devotion. And we can worship with all of our hearts, but if we do not worship the one true living God, ultimately, our worship is in vain. Because in the end, all of our false gods, all false gods will fail us. Because not only will those God's fail to save your soul. They will ultimately fail to satisfy your hearts in this life. They will leave you empty and broken. As John Piper says, nothing is going to bring satisfaction to our sinful, guilty, aching hearts besides God. Because it is for Him and for His glory that we were created. And in His image, we have been, we have been made his image has been stamped on us. We were created to reflect Him, to know Him, to love Him, to worship Him. And nothing in all of creation, nothing in all of the cosmos will ever satisfy us no matter what we choose to love or worship in His place. Now, what do we, what do, we do with this? Truth. Well, number one is we just need to settle this truth in our hearts. We just need to just let the Word of God speak to us and let it be settled in our minds and our hearts. That there is not only no atheists and no one is innocent, but there is no one who doesn't worship something. 
That's just the truth that you just need to let it be a settled conviction now. Everyone is religious. Everyone has faith in something. Everyone worships something. Everyone loves something supreme. Everyone does. Which is further evidence of the fact that they know the truth. We must not allow ourselves to believe the lie that others tell us about themselves. They know God they have simply exchanged the truth for a lie. And in light of that, we must not allow them to make us feel anti-intellectual for our faith. This is what the world wants to do. By the way, this is why a lot of Christians get themselves in trouble. They want the approval of men. They want the approval of those in the academy. They want the approval of intellectuals. And somehow, someway, they try to seed the ground that we stand on and find neutral ground to try to go back and forth with these people, giving credibility to the lie that they believe. There is no neutral ground, by the way. There's none. We must not allow them to make us feel anti-intellectuals for our faith. Many people who claim to be atheists will lampoon you for your faith and for the worship that you have and say that you're just superstitious and childish. But the truth is, it's just a cover. It's just a cover for them to, because they have exchanged the truth for a lie. By the way, this is why I don't bite when someone says, you, you can't even prove that your God exists. I don't need to, brother. I don't need to. Right? You're the one that's lying, not me. Right? That's why I don't get offended when people say, well, you just bow your knee down to some magic sky daddy. Okay, that's fine. You can call him that if you want to. It doesn't offend me. Right? I'm not the one living the lie. Right? By the way, they're not really trying to persuade me. They're just trying to persuade themselves. Their foolish hearts are darkened. That's the truth, right? And this is why it's not our job, by the way. This is why it's not our job to argue them into heaven. By the way, you can't ever argue anyone into heaven. Right? What is our job? It's the same as it always has been. Sow the seed, love the people, and pray for God to do the, the thing that only He can do. Change their hearts, their darkened hearts, and then never give up on them because you never know when God's going to work. The second thing we need to do, besides settling that as truth in our heart, is we need to examine our own hearts. Because the truth is, as Calvin says, our hearts are idol factories. And even though that we are saved and we have the assurance of our salvation, even though we have been born again of the Spirit, and even though right, that we come and we worship God in spirit and truth, there are still things in our lives that try to work their way in to distract us from our one true love. Sometimes we lose sight. There are all kinds of idols subtly and overtly competing for our attention. We all know it. Right? It can be money. How many hours have we wrung our hands worrying, scheming, trying to figure out the whole money thing, only to realize that God's our provider. People can be caught up in worshiping the idol of retirement, forgetting that even in their old age that God has worked for them to do. It could be leisure, it could be sports, it could be politics. Oh my goodness, if there's something that distracts Christians, it could be that right there. On both the left and the right, by the way. It can even be theology. We can get so caught in trying to be theologically correct all the time that we lose sight on the one that we're supposed to be theologizing. Right? It could also be even an obsession about the end times. Brothers and sisters, as the world grows darker, I'm telling you right now, that's a bigger and bigger and bigger distraction for people. And I remind people all the time, before you figure out Rome, uh, uh, Revelations, you need to figure out the book of Romans. Right? It doesn't matter if you can identify who the Antichrist is if you don't know what the gospel is. Right? It can also be family. Right? It can be a love relationship. It can be sex. It can be, right? It can even be vicariously living through our own children. There are lots of things that compete for that number one place in our heart, that, that top affection that we have. There are lots of things that we can and do allow to distract us from giving proper honor and thanksgiving to God. Praise the Lord, we're not saved by our ability to never ever stumble, right? But it is incumbent upon us to remind ourselves of this truth and refocus our lives back on Christ in the best way that I have found to do this. The very best way that I have found to do this is to preach to myself over and over the gospel. That is the antidote, right? 
When I find myself distracted, when I find myself wondering if I'm worthy of God's love, and believe me, I still ask that question at times. When I find myself giving more and more of my time and attention to the things of this world rather than the things of God, I remind myself of the central truth that God created me special in His own image. It's not a statement of arrogance. It's just a statement of of what the Bible says about me. I was created for God. I was created to know God. I was created to be connected to God and to worship Him. And I was created for a personal relationship with the Creator of all things. But that relationship was destroyed because of my sin. I inherited a sin nature, but I certainly was responsible because I willingly rebelled against that God. I denied Him. I cursed Him. I hated Him. I wanted the gifts that He had to offer, but I did not want the giver of the gifts. I fell deep into a life of sin. And because of that, God's wrath and anger rightly burned against me. And had He let me go, on to my fate, I would have justifiably been sent to hell. And what was worth, there's nothing I can do to change that. There's nothing that I could do to fix it. I tried to be a good person in my own life, right? I tried to, be, to do more good than I did bad. If you would have asked me then if there was a heaven, would you think you had the right to go to heaven? I would have said yes. Why? Because I'm a good person. But nothing I could have ever done would have ever overcome the stain of my sin because it's impossible. Which means I was helpless and hopeless. And the Lord brought me to that place where I could finally see that. But then the good news that in spite of me and in spite of all that I'd done, for some reason that still I don't understand, God loved me. And out of His love, He sent His Son into the world to do for me all the things I couldn't do, to live a perfect life that I couldn't live, to obey a law that I had failed to obey, to hold up a covenant that I didn't even know existed, and to earn for me a righteousness that I could never attain on my own, but a righteousness that was required to have a relationship with God. And then if that weren't enough, then He came and He died. He suffered and He died on the cross for my sins, drinking down, taking upon himself the full measure of God's wrath against me. Against me. And he did all that long before I could do anything for him. He died in my place and three days later rose again, proving that he is what he claimed to be, the risen son of God. And that he can do what he promised to do, which is to save me from my sins. And Jesus said, I can enter into the kingdom by one way. Repent and believe the gospel. And I did. And the moment I did, my sins were washed completely away. Past, present, and future. And I became right with God. I had a righteousness, a perfection, where I could have a relationship with God. Not because of me, but because of what Christ has done for me. And then I was adopted into the family of God and call God Abba, Father. And then I was given the Holy Spirit to come into my life, to convict me of sin and to lead me and guide me and became the deposit that's the guarantee that the treasure that awaits me in heaven is indeed mine. And that always brings me back to center. Why? It had nothing to do with me. It was all Him. And because of that then, I look and see my beautiful wife that He gave me who loves me in spite of me and the beautiful children that He's given me who've become good people in spite of me and the church family who continues to be hungry for the Word of God and who come to worship Him in spirit and in truth in spite of me and all the good, gracious gifts that God pours out over and over and over again. I can't but help to give thanks to Him. I can't but help but to love Him supreme. And I can't but help to want to honor Him. And even when I fail to do so, knowing that I can't honor Him the way that I ought to, I realize even that is covered by the blood of Christ. That's how we get back to center, is remembering who He is and who we are. And remember that the world is going to continually lie 
about that. And all we have is to go back out and just shine the light and share the truth. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.